For KOSU News, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. A pro-gun measure dubbed constitutional carry by supporters takes its first steps into the 2019 legislature. House Bill 2597, which is similar to a measure vetoed by Governor Fallon last year, allows anyone over 21 to carry a weapon without any training or licensing. It passes off the House floor by a vote of 70 to 30 and now heads to the Senate. Neva, do you think this will make it all the way to the governor's desk? I think there's a high probability. I mean, there's every, uh, from what I understand in the Senate, um, uh, there's equally strong support. So I think the governor, even when he tweeted just uh, really uh, shortly after the vote in the House, uh, where he said that uh, from the very beginning he had he had said he would sign legislation that places uh, Oklahoma Oklahoma in the ranks of constitutional carry states. So I think he's telegraphed his uh, his uh, leaning at least at this point. We'll see what happens. I mean, there's there is some difference between the the Senate version and the House version. The House version, many people think. Uh, um, uh, handles and addresses some of the concerns that outside groups that before were strongly in, uh, opposing uh, the bill uh, last session and and were some of the strongest probably forces to uh, uh, to persuade Governor Fallon at the time to veto it. So, but the long and the short of it is, I mean, we have a very strong pro, uh, pro-gun legislature, pro-Second Amendment legislature, and I think, uh, I think that we'll see this probably on a fairly fast track. It could very well be the first bill that hits the governor's desk for him to actually sign. Ryan. Well, I, I think constitutional carry is a misnomer. It, it shouldn't be called constitutional carry. And you know, Representative West, whenever he was talking about this bill on the floor, he says the Constitution clearly states that we have the right to keep and bear arms. If, if he really believes that the limits that we currently impose on individuals to carry handguns with them in, in most public places in the state of Oklahoma, if he really believes that the Constitution allows this for this, legislation isn't the vehicle to get to where he wants to go. If he really believes that, he should test it he should get uh, you know, a penalty for carrying without a license, or somebody else should, and they should test it in the court system. And the reason that they're not testing it in the court system is because what they really know is that the federal courts have said time and again that even though the Second Amendment says what it says, that it does not prohibit states from placing reasonable restrictions on your ability to carry and own firearms. And that's what we have in Oklahoma, very reasonable and frankly not strict enough restrictions on your ability to carry firearms. You know, we're a year out from the Parkland shootings. Uh, I think that the other the other point here that I think is, is worth making is that I, I do understand where the kind of the bravado comes from. And we heard it on the House floor the other day. Wouldn't you want me to show up with a gun to confront the bad guy? And I think what this pathology that we have around gun ownership uh, is really about is this this denial of how vulnerable we all are to gun violence. Yoga studios. I mean, the yoga studio that was shot and uh, the shooting in Florida. What we learned there was that the two people that died, they didn't have any chance to respond. They were shot from behind. And then the, the, the attack was ultimately stopped by somebody wielding a vacuum cleaner. And so I think that we want to all 
make ourselves feel better by thinking that these situations that we hear about in the news, that we'd be an exception. We'd be able to survive if we had a gun. But, and that's just not true. And there's also a concern about fiscal, uh, the lo loss of money. Uh, uh, from that, that was, well, that do you was, think that's one thing that will well, be? Well, I think it remains to be seen. I mean, the four to six million uh, that was uh, estimated that would be the loss uh, uh, to, to OSBI from uh, from what uh, from what was debated on the floor, I, th I think that's something that has to be worked through, but it didn't seem to be a, a great sticking point. I think the other the other point to this is that this bill, I mean, the House bill that passed, would not change any of the existing state law uh, on where guns can and cannot be carried, and it also doesn't have anything to do in terms of uh, uh, dealing with uh, the restrictions already there on on criminal records. So, I mean, it, what it does, I mean, in essence, is is a, a law-abiding citizen. Uh, it gives them, in in their view, and and the argument being made, their constitutional right to not be. Uh, have to pay to have uh, have the right to carry a firearm or to uh, own a firearm. The big question I have, though, is law-abiding citizen. If he's not being permitted, if he's not being licensed, then how do you know it's a law? It's just somebody going to buy a gun. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, that's just it, is that, you know, you wouldn't know that until somebody was <clears throat> either stopped by law enforcement and they, they found a gun during maybe a routine traffic stop, or you have a shooting uh, or an incident, and then the gun owner is found out to not be uh, allowed to carry it because of a criminal conviction or something like that. Again, you know, we, we really, I think, are just in denial about how vulnerable we all are to gun violence. And, you know, bills like this want to make us feel safe, but at the end of the day, they make us much less safe. Oklahoma lost 30,000 teachers over the last five years. Those, these staggering numbers come from a report through the State Department of Education, which shows one reason for the mass exodus was teacher pay, but it also shows increased class sizes, unmanageable workloads, and disrespect for the profession as reasons for leaving. Ryan, do you think a report like this could light a fire under lawmakers to do more? I, I hope it does. And, I, and when we look at also uh, emergency certifications that have been uh, coming in as a result of this, so we're talking about teachers that are otherwise not certified to teach, that are getting certified credentials to teach. In the 2018-2019 school year, that figure was 2,915. And compare that to 2012, we had 32 emergency certifications. That's, you know, in addition to this huge exodus of teachers from the profession, we're seeing a lot of folks coming into the schools, I'm, I'm sure are you know, great uh, in the classroom at some point, but we have these standards for a reason and we're having to deviate from them because of this shortage. It's going to take a lot more than a single pay raise that we saw last year. It was a tremendous first step for the state of Oklahoma. But if we want to keep qualified teachers in the classrooms, we've got to do things about class sizes, about the resources that they have in those uh, classes, and to make sure that teachers realize that it's not just lip service on the campaign trail, that education is the key to our state's prosperity, but we have to have real, real commitment to making their jobs the best that they can be. And Eva, a pay raise for the teachers did actually go out earlier this week for $1,200, something that Governor Stitt was asking for. So at least there's one step toward fixing the pay. It, it, and, it's one, and it's one component of this. I mean, right. even in this survey, I mean, one of the things that was noted was that a third of the respondents said that uh, that, that held active teach, teaching certificates no longer in the classroom said that the pay was one thing, but two-thirds said it was many other things, mm -hmm. classroom size, a, a workload, I mean, all of those other things. So it's a broader, you know, it, it's really a 
broader context that we have to take this whole, you know, this whole discussion. And I think the other thing to remember is, I mean, Oklahoma, while we're talking about 10% reduction, I mean, in, in terms of the teacher workforce, uh, nationally, it's it's pushing 8%. So this is a national problem as well as a, I mean, sometimes we think Oklahoma is the only state that is experienced this, experiencing these great difficulties in, in grappling with the problems in, in education, but really it's a national epidemic as well. The walkouts in Denver and L.A., we've, we've seen them. It's not just here in Oklahoma. And it's not always about pay. Pay is an right. important component, but it conditions in those classrooms and, and your ability to succeed there. If you if you know a teacher or if you have kids in a public school, uh, I mean, I think that you know really well the just the remarkable task that these teachers do every single day uh, to get done what they get done because they, they, they have the odds stacked against them right now. Medical marijuana sales exceed $4 million in the month of January alone. The $4.3 million in sales is four times higher than December. It also brought in, generated, it generated more than $300,000 in revenue to the state's coffers. Neva, are you surprised by these numbers? Well, the numbers are fairly significant. I think, you know, when you talk about $13 million in licensing fees, uh, <clears throat> I think the number was 44,000 Oklahoma, Oklahomans that uh, now have their card. They've got a uh, pushing up thousand dispensaries uh, uh, over 1600 growers have been licensed uh, since uh, last summer so I mean these numbers are I mean I think uh, no one really knew I think the uh, uh, I think the uh, uh, tax commission as well as the OMMA I mean in some of their projections they seem to be on track I mean where they thought it was going to be and obviously much of this is front-loaded people are rushing to, to, to do it quickly some with the argument that they don't know what the legislature is going to do so they want to get in get Get this done in case there are some, you know, some new uh, 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 limitations or rules or whatever that that are that come into play. So, but I think the long and the short of it is, when you look at these numbers, I mean, you can see that this is an issue that the legislature really does have to, even though they've gone through 13 meetings and had a very strong bipartisan working effort and trying to come up with this unity plan and and some things that it really is incumbent upon the legislature to deal with this and make sure that all of these sticking points and all of these issues that are very important that we really try to do a good job right up front uh, to get them handled rather than continue to have to kind of scotch tape it together down the road and have more and more problems as a result of it. And I'm wondering, I think the pro-medical marijuana people would say they they knew that this this is the kind of revenue that would come in if you started doing something like this. Well, and it's important to note that even though we we've got you know three hundred and five thousand dollars in revenue coming out of January, um, that medical marijuana isn't meant to generate revenue. We're talking about delivery of a medicine for patients, and so even though there is this tax that's there to help support the medical marijuana system in the state of Oklahoma, the regulatory system. You know, if you really think about this in terms, if we move to responsible adult use, which is a revenue generating measure, then those numbers are going to be much higher and it's going to be, it'll go beyond just sustaining the, the regulatory regime around medical marijuana and could be invested in things like education, infrastructure, healthcare, uh, you name it. Um, so the numbers there are big, uh, but if we really want to talk about a revenue discussion, that puts us into the recreational area. But 44,000 folks, I'm proud to say I'm one of those medical marijuana license holders. And when I walk into a dispensary, they're professional and the, the, they always have a lot of folks in there uh, and folks from all walks of life, you know, walking into these dispensaries, we're beginning to see the stigma around um, uh, medical marijuana use in, in the state of Oklahoma evaporating very quickly. The unity bill that came out from this Wednesday, the working group and the legislature 
uh, I really think is probably, you know, from, from initial glance is going to respect the will of state question 788. Uh, we're not going to see a lot of, I think, onerous regulations coming out of this legislative session. So this pro this program is going to continue to grow and grow. And I think more and more Oklahomans are going to realize the benefit of a responsible and well-regulated medical marijuana industry in Oklahoma. How quickly do they have to get this unit? I mean, it's, 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 it basically regulates the, the, the industry itself. How quickly do they need to get this out to get to the governor to sign it? Well, I think that's, uh, I think that's that and this uh, first bill that we saw on the, uh, con- the concealed carry or the uh, uh, permitless carry, whatever terminology, <laughs> constitutional carry. I mean, you, everybody's got a version that they want to call it. I mean, I think this is the next one that's going to be kind of up on the, uh, up on the front burner and we'll see something happen probably next week to see some real movement. And the biggest part of that unity bill are the testing standards and allowing the state to contract with up to three different laboratories. And those labs would have to be independent. They couldn't have uh, commercial uh, clients as well. They would work for the state to allow the state to begin to test uh, the medical cannabis that's being produced in the state of Oklahoma. That's the real component that's been missing right now uh, is that you know when patients walk in, they're really having to rely upon uh, the the dispensaries and the processors and the growers as saying that what they're getting is what they're actually getting. And, and I think one of the things they have to be sensitive to, and and I've heard this from folks that, particularly older folks, that uh, uh, have had some difficulty kind of going through this application process because it's all online. That mm-hmm, it's hard. Right. You can't walk in and 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 uh, submit an application. So if you don't have a scanner and you can't do all of the things that that are necessary, and they say, well, you can go to a public library. Well, not every public library it, it has a scanner. That that is a, mm-hmm. a, a fact. So uh, being able to streamline some of this and, it, and, and create some, uh, uh, so, some context for, for folks that, you know, need to have that extra level of uh, help and assistance in this, I think that's, that's going to be one of the things that probably comes up in the discussion when these lawmakers who have had these phone calls and had these uh, uh, constituents have these issues. Uh, it seems to be not just an isolated here and there, but seems to be something that does, in fact, need to be addressed. You know, so a, a couple of things on that. One, private sector is closing the gap on that somewhat, uh, where a lot of physicians, when you go in for your recommendation, uh, they will help you complete the application there in their offices. Oh, wow, okay. So they, you know, that's a service that a lot yeah. of physicians are providing. And then number two, uh, on election day this, uh, this week, where a couple of, you know, good friends of mine, James Cooper and Joe Beth Harmon, one city council post here in, in uh, Oklahoma city. When I went in to vote, I used my medical marijuana <laughs> uh, license uh, as my state ID. Is that a, to, is that a picture it, ID? It is a picture ID. Oh. I use that to vote. So, uh, and, 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 the, and, and the poll workers were appreciative to see one so that they would know what it looked like in the future. That's fantastic. <laughs> <Yeah>. All right. <laughs> Ryan's public service. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Oklahoma County's mental health court is no longer keeping participants in custody at the county jail while they await mental health treatment. In the past, mental health court participants who needed inpatient care often waited in the jail for weeks or months while officials searched for a treatment facility that could take them. Now they will be released on their own recognizance. Ryan, how big of a deal is this? Well, I think that the the real issue is that no one should be in that county jail right now. I mean, when we look at the, the conditions that, that are there, uh, and we're talking largely about pretrial detainees. We're not talking about people that have con- been convicted of any crime. You, if you're in jail, it's generally because... You are there because a bond hasn't been set for you because there's a flight risk or you're a danger to the public, or you have a bond set for you that it's too high for you to pay and you can't afford to get out. And you're not convicted. You're an innocent person and you're sitting in there 
We saw you know video from a news crew that went through the Oklahoma County Jail come out earlier uh, or over the weekend uh, where you have human waste uh, literally leaking from the ceilings. Uh, you know, the reporters and the folks taking the tour had to wear rain boots to, to walk through the area. And somebody said, is this exceptional? Is this uh, something that just happened today? And they said, no, it's always like this. This is what we're always dealing with. Mm-hmm. It is a human rights catastrophe. And so it makes it makes uh, absolutely all the sense in the world to keep mental health uh, patients out of there because if you don't walk in with a mental health condition or if you walk in with one, you're going to come out with one or one that's exacerbated. And that's that's... Uh, counterproductive to what the county needs to be doing with people in mental health court. Neva? I, I think it is a major shift, and it's a, it's a needed shift, as, as Ryan said. I mean, we have to, we have to deal with the mental health component of, uh, uh, of, tr- of treatment and the need for more treatment and the need to be able to address this in an efficient way up front. And that's something that that heretofore has just not taken place. So I think uh, I think a more aggressive aggressive posture on this is is needed. And I think, frankly, the public welcomes it. I, mm-hmm. I think there is a growing awareness, as we've talked about many times, uh, that the public does understand that this is a major issue. It's a major issue for society, and we have to address it in a much more significant way. So, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, this is the first step in what is a very difficult and long, you know, long and process. Yeah. and expensive process. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, how do we get where we need to go and uh, get those beds that we need that we all recognize, statistics validate, and uh, uh, hopefully, hopefully this will not not just be something that's kind of a, a little blip on the radar, but that they can really keep it moving in the right direction. Yeah, there was no public outcry at all. Usually there's something, oh, well, you can't, can't do that. But no, it was the public sure. seemed to be completely behind something like yeah, this. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, the, the, real, uh, the real tragedy here is that a lot of the folks that, that do walk into that situation would benefit from a controlled environment, like at a, at a mental health facility, so that they've got somebody making sure that they're taking their medications. Which used to be, the, and, used to be one of the reasons, uh, you know, behind what they did, was that, that that was more a safety issue and a issue better for them. Yeah, but, or you have a high rate of homelessness among uh, mental health clients. The, the problem now is that, you know, so you take them out of this traumatic and uh, you know, awful county jail, uh, but then where do they go? And so, you know, without any mental health beds, it's, it's probably, you know, this is how tragic it is right now. We're saying it's better for them to live on the street uh, while they're moving through the mental health court than it is for them to be in the county jail. And that's, that's, that's a real problem that, that we're facing right now. Which is now. the other step is we need more mental health treatment Absolutely. facilities for these people. Yeah. Governor Stitt and MC Hammer walk into a prison Nope, that's not the start of a joke. It actually, <laughs> it actually happened on Monday. Uh, the two, along with other visitors, came to see a new program at Mabel Bassett Women's Facility in McLeod, known as The Last Mile. It helps the inmates learn how to code on computers, giving them real-life skills when they leave prison. Neva, this sounds like an amazing opportunity for It is. I, I really, this is, this is a program that uh, is just absolutely amazing. It's, I think, the fourth in the country in a women's uh, correctional facility. Uh, certainly something that uh, has been brought widely received here in Oklahoma. I think it was uh, significant that the governor was there mm-hmm. uh, and uh, other dignitaries to kind of roll this out to put a, a high profile position uh, to it. And I think when you look at uh, you look at some of these groups and some of these initiatives like the Last Mile that have been undertaken uh, that have uh, uh, folks uh, like the George Kaiser Family Foundation, the Lobeck uh, 
Taylor, Taylor Family Foundation. Yeah. I mean, those folks here in Oklahoma, as well as these national, you know, folks from uh, the national side that have come in. I mean, I think it it gives an opportunity as one of the uh, uh, as one of the uh, women that uh, are going through this uh, coding program said, uh, it gives us a, a hope and an opportunity in a world that is not uh, felony friendly, as she called it. I mean that uh, that you have to have a skill set, you have to have some ability once you go outside those uh, outside those locked doors to be able to reintegrate into society and be be a productive citizen. So I applaud this effort. Hopefully it's something that will expand. And certainly I think that uh, uh, being at, on the forefront of one of the first of a handful across the country, I think uh, I think we should all be uh, uh, very proud of. Right. I think it's uh, a wonderful program. I it, Again, it shouldn't have to exist. Um, you know, the, the problem is, is that, you know, we're, we're looking at this private-public partnership. That private-public par- partnership is important because the state of Oklahoma, through budget cuts to the Department of Corrections, has largely eliminated a lot of the programs that we were funding as a state. You know, we call it the Department of Corrections. We're not really correcting anything. We're warehousing people. And so a large number of the women that are participating in this program, I'm glad that they're getting to do this. But a couple of points. One, many of them shouldn't be in prison to begin with. Uh, you know, the prison is not the place for them to have paid for any sort of a crime that they may that they may have committed. Many of them are victims of domestic violence themselves. Many of them have seen their families torn apart. Many of them will leave prison in a worse situation than when they entered. And so if they were <clears throat> in a bad position beforehand that led to them going to prison, they're walking out to a more difficult situation, a broken family and an, and an upset community dynamic that did not have to happen. And then second, if we give these women these skills, we have to make sure that there are employers out there willing to accept them as employees whenever they come out. So it's not enough to have a skill set. It's, it's got to really be, whether it's licensing or whether it's uh, incentives for employers to hire uh, formerly incarcerated individuals so that when they get out, there's an opportunity waiting on them. They don't just have these skills that they have to put on a shelf to collect dust. I, I, th- I think it is very important, though, that, it, that the, these are public-private partnerships, and I think that's significant. I don't think that I don't think that most uh, Oklahoma taxpayers would suggest that these types of programs need to be fully funded by state-appropriated dollars. I think the more that we can see uh, the ability to utilize uh, a public and private partnership, uh, such as this this very one that we're speaking about, it is it is the direction that we need to go because it will uh, offer probably more opportunities and more facilities faster than uh, than we could ever think about if we're going to try to uh, kind of catch back up with as we've talked about. I mean, DOC is never going to you know have enough dollars to do the basics that they need to do in corrections. So the ability to enhance. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, the stay there and to be able to create something where they can get some job skills to go out and and I agree with you Ryan I mean they're they're uh, again to incentivize the private sector to be more willing to uh, uh, to take someone who has the skill set who has the ability and give them that chance once they uh, uh, once they uh, are back out uh, ready to go back into the workforce I think is a very key component to the overall success of these of this type of program yeah one of the stats I saw on this was that they've been around since 2010 and no mm-hmm. woman who has graduated their program has ever returned to prison and it, that's a huge that yeah. we have a 100 yeah recidivism that's a big deal rate, you know. that is i i would say that uh, that I, I agree with neva that if we continue with our current incarceration rates 
uh, in the state of Oklahoma, DOC will never catch up. I mean, the, the infrastructure issues and the personnel issues that they're facing right now are so enormous. Uh, you know, as President Trump would say, it's like nothing we've ever seen before, uh, that we could never catch up. But in reality, the state of Oklahoma could very realistically incarcerate as many as half uh, the inmates that we incarcerate right now about we could we could if we really wanted to in, uh, reduce incarceration by half in the state of Oklahoma in a year uh, the public would be no less safe for it as a result and we would have tremendous savings at, at, within DOC that we could invest in programs like this and I think the more s success we see out of programs like this the more the public will be very uh, uh, very open and receptive to the, the some of these larger discussions about how we reintegrate larger numbers of people potentially back into society. And keep them from going there in the first there place. And Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.